um, well, maybe you don't know, but if you're here for the first time, but we've been preaching through our mission, sort of the six statements that are wrapped up in our mission. And what we've been really talking about is the fact that God has given us a new beginning, and not just as a church with a building, but really through Jesus Christ, we have been given brand new life. And we've talked about this picture of our mission and new beginnings in this sort of series that we've been exploring for the past four weeks that was really launched by our opportunity to move into a new venue up on 49th and um, Western. This is the last Sunday I'm going to mention this stuff about our fundraising efforts, so this is it. We're trying to wrap all this up today. As of today, um, we have officially taken in $42,500 towards our goal of eighty grand, which is really exciting. Um, and it's also a big challenge because we do have some, some effort to go to make that goal. As I mentioned the first week, if we don't make that goal, that's totally fine. We're moving anyway. God is moving. We are trusting. We are walking out this door. So we are going to do it. What it means is that you may need to help us along the way as we find uh, and can't take care of all of our needs right up front. Um, but we need everyone's help. See, the reality is that we're a very mobile church. Everything we have belongs in a trailer. The nice things you see here really don't belong to us. The chairs, our coffee, as I mentioned, our coffee pot, the bungee cord one, that's ours. So we got that going for us, which is nice. So we, have, we don't have much, and we love that, but we do need some things. We do need things like chairs and signs and parking stuff, and you know, we need to do all those things. So if, if we're challenging all of our, our Covenant family members to think about how you can contribute to this effort. If you haven't, Please think about how you can. Um, we'd love for you to do that. Back there at the table, there are uh, these kind of blue envelopes. All you got to do is drop your offering in there. You can make a one-time gift or a six-month pledge. Um, I'm going to pass these baskets around because they also have prayer cards and get to know your cards. If you're here for the first time, we'd love to fill out a yellow card. If not, um, you can pass that basket along. Now, this isn't a big, you've got to give us money because we recognize that uh, that's not for everybody. Some of, the, some of you, uh, you give us your time and you give us your heart and that's all we ask for. So if you're here for the first time or the first few times, we're not, we're not really asking for your money at all. We're just simply saying we want to, you want to be a part of what God is doing with us. And so our, our, our covenant family, our members, um, we take the responsibility very seriously. So we're really asking everyone to get involved no matter how big or how small to make it a reality. Right now we've got about our construction costs covered. We are looking to, uh, new signs will be going up. We've got all kinds of small things that have to take place. We want to stock our Vine Kids area. We have no Vine Kids supplies. Everything we have comes in a little tub with a yellow lid. And uh, so we, we want markers and colors and tables and chairs. We want great stuff for our kids. And so the resources that we raise are going to go to do just those things. We want to be able to give Stephanie and our, our, our Vaughn Kids workers the opportunity to, to really love those kids well. So all those things um, are wrapped into to this effort. So, but it's not our church. Remember that. We're not moving to a new home. It's really a launching point more than anything for worship, a launching point for mission, a launching point for ministry. Our church is really the gathering. It's the ecclesia. It's the uh, assembly. When we get together, we are the church. We're not moving to a new church. This is the church. When we gather in Good Home Park and we have life groups that meet in Edmond or, or in South Oklahoma City or wherever, we are the church. And it's important to recognize that in the middle of this um, process. So um, we need to hold that tightly. So because of all those things that we're talking about, and we'd love for those uh, efforts to be wrapped up this week so that we're not talking about money anymore, we're just kind of moving on. But at this time when we're talking about those things, it's really important for us to remember our mission. 
Because we're a church that's made up of all kinds of different people, right? I mean, you've got your background, I've got mine. We don't always think the same on everything. We like different music. We vote different ways. We come from different parts of the country. You know, we just are different. But what unites us as a church is our mission. Part of the beautiful mosaic that is the church is that we come from all walks of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all racial backgrounds. You know, we come from different places and we bring with us different things. And that mosaic is beautiful. But what unites us in that crazy mosaic is our mission. And what we've been talking about for the past four weeks, and really will be for the next two weeks, is that mission, that uniting factor. And I I kind of uh, have laid it out there for us for the first time a few weeks ago. And our mission really is to love much and love well, right, as we take the gospel to the one and to the city and to the world. The first two weeks we really unpacked what love loving well and loving much looks like. And they're very different. We talked about the extravagance of loving much and the intentionality of loving well. Last week we talked about really the key point of our mission, which is taking the gospel. What does it mean to live as a sent people and to take the gospel into the world? We talked about what the gospel was and that the gospel wasn't a message. It's not a theology. It's not a system. But the gospel is a person. We talked about what it means to take Jesus, the person, into the world. Jesus who is hope and who is freedom. And this week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking the who question, which is, if we love much and love well as we take the gospel, who are we taking it to? And we're going to look this morning at the one, right, the importance of the individual in the economy of heaven. We're going to look next week at the importance of the city, and then we'll talk about the importance of the world as we really explore who we are. Knowing our mission, being able to articulate it, knowing what these words mean is incredibly important because this is what unites us. Now we have values, worship driven, community minded, missionally focused. We love God, love people, follow Jesus. That's how we live out those values. But our mission sort of kind of arcs over all those things. It's all encompassing and says this is who is a church we want to be and we will never walk away from it. That's our heartbeat. So this morning we're going to be exploring the idea of the one and the importance of the one in sort of the economy or uh in the, the kind of thinking process of, uh, of heaven. So as we get ready to do that, I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible and find your way to the book of Luke chapter 15. We're going to be at a couple of different places, but find your uh, way to the book of Luke chapter 15, and uh, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to pray for us this morning. Let's take a moment, ask the Lord to uh, open our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, we thank you for the Reynolds family and how they have decided to trust you and follow you in a new direction in their life. And Lord, I thank you for leading uh, them to us and us to them and that, God, you are so faithful. And as a church, we're at a place, I mean, a young church plant got at a place where we say we value children this much that our first resource is to say we want to have someone that comes in and helps us love kids well. It's not her job to love our kids well. It's her job to help us as a family love our children well and to show us how to do that the best way possible. And Lord, we pray blessing and favor over them. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to become a permanent place in this neighborhood. Lord, we've been blessed by Will Rogers, but Lord, we want to put our our stake in the ground. We want to develop a beachhead in this community. We want to love our neighbors. God, we want to draw them to a place where they can see you in our lives. We want to be passionate about taking the gospel to their doorsteps. Lord, I pray that as we open your word today, we are we are convicted about what it means to love the one well, um, Lord, and we're convicted about your heartbeat for the one as well. Take a moment and just pray in your own heart. Ask God to begin to work in you, to reveal something new to you this morning. Just kind of whisper those things. God, we pray that you would reveal something new to me this morning.
And take a moment and pray for someone around you or behind you. Um, just pray that God would move in their lives. I always say, be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. God, we pray that you would be glorified and exalted. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless us this morning through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So our mission is a very intentional statement that is intended to remind not only us of our call and who we are, but to demonstrate to the world why we exist, right? I mean, that's really, I mean, for you know, better terms, it's a mission statement, but it's very corporate when we say it that way. It's really more of a, a mission, but it's the same concept. It's a, it exists to remind us of who we are and exists to show the world who we are. I mean, that's why it's there. And it's important that we know it, that we're here to love much and love well as we take the gospel. Where? To the one into the city, into the world. When we think about the one, we're really talking about the individual. We're talking about the person. In our sort of uh, global corporate culture, the one is really meaningless. Now, what I mean is that when we think about how we live in today's culture, right, we're kind of flooded with this sort of corporate mentality that thinks a little bit different. There's nothing wrong with it, per se. It just thinks a little bit different. We don't look at people necessarily as individuals. We look at them in groups. We look at demographics, right? We look at number of viewers. We look at, look at number of listeners. We look at age demographics. We look at household income. We group people together to try and target certain groups to have a better return on our investment or, you know, whatever those things are. And that corporate mentality, right, it really doesn't have a lot of room for the individual. The corporate mentality lumps everybody into categories and then tries to do the best they can to reach as many categories as possible or the designated category that a corporate company or that corporate mentality is trying to reach. And that's just the way things sort of work. And there's nothing wrong with that. The, the truth is, is that that bleeds into pretty much everything we do and it bleeds into our religious or our Christian culture as well. That sort of kind of heartbeat to reach the most possible and target those things and, and really develop a religious structure that is built around the highest possible return on our investment um, as we can. To reach the most people, to have the most, you know, as many services or as many people as we can or as many baptisms or as many salvations. And we talk about it in terms of those categories. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about our churches like we're reading stat lines from our favorite football team or whatever. You know, oh, we had, you know, we had 92 people get saved or 92 people get baptized or we have, we have seven services, we have two services or we have 100 people or we have 1,000 or whatever. And we, we use these things as some kind of, sometimes a false sense of relevancy right, for trying to justify the fact that we are relevant as a church because we have these many folks or these many things. And it's not that, that, that reaching the most people isn't important because reaching people is important. We want to reach all the kind of people we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you read scripture, what you understand very quickly is that in the economy of heaven, the one matters. The individual matters when it comes to how God thinks. And as a church, and as the church, Big C, we all like to say that the individual matters, that it's all about the one person, but really we don't always live that way. When we have a service and only 1,000 people come, or only 100 people come, or only 15 people come, depending on what church it is, sometimes there's a deflating sense of failure. We got all dressed up, we had all of our stuff pulled out, and there's only like 15 people there. We say that we value the individual, right? But really, we value relevancy. And so part of what we need to understand as a church is that the one matters to God. 
And there's a lot of examples in that. And I want you to turn your attention to chapter, 15, or chapter 15 of the book of Luke. There's, there, I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of why this is important uh, throughout Scripture, this principle of play. We look at Jesus' relationship with people, the way he loved people, the individual encounters he has, the way he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We look at God's relationship with people like Moses, and we can go on and on and on. And, and in fact, a lot of Jesus' parables right here in this section of Luke are really reminding us of the one. And I want to point one out, a rather obvious one, to just show you in a kind of a brief way just how much God values and loves the individual. So let's take a look at uh, the book of Luke, chapter 15, starting in verse 1, as we explore this concept of the individual, of the one, through the lens of, of, uh, of the Lord, through the lens of heaven. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him. They were gathering to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with him. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine out in the open country and go after the sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully places it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Very familiar parable. In fact, I think on a couple of different occasions, we may have even explored it in here from a different angle. But when you look at this parable, you see very clearly and very quickly that the one, the person, the individual matters when it comes to the thinking of God, right? When it comes to the economy of heaven, the one makes a difference. And I love this parable because as Jesus often does, right, his, his audience is, is pretty much a, a, a wide scope of people, right? And he's gathering there teaching tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees were there too because they were always there when Jesus was teaching. And so they're gathered. The tax collectors and sinners are sitting on the ground in front of Jesus and Jesus is teaching them. And the tax collectors and sinners are at his feet. Right? Jesus most likely is probably even sitting down with them in some kind of, uh, kind of uh, on the floor circle or sitting area. You know, they're just sitting and then Jesus is teaching. And the tax collectors and sinners, like they often do, didn't necessarily sit with Jesus if it, if it wasn't at a table. They would stand in the back um, and they were muttering among themselves. I mean, can you believe this person? He welcomes sinners and eats with them. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the way that Jesus kind of shattered these cultural paradigms and how he, he would do things with tax collectors and sinners that went beyond just teaching, how he would actually share a meal with them. And if you look at this scenario for a minute, it's really actually pretty amazing because he is not only teaching the sinful, saying, listen, tax collector man, you are, are breaking God's law by stealing, and, and so I want to give you some reasons why your life can be better if you'll just follow these rules. And he doesn't look at the prostitutes and other people that are gathered in that circle and look at them and say, listen, your life is a disaster. Let me show you the way to live a better life. But the text says that the Pharisees were frustrated, not because he was just teaching them, but because he was sitting and eating with them. And we've talked about the importance of sharing a meal with someone, and that sort of antiquity, that culture was like sharing life, right? It was breaking open his heart and his life and sharing it with someone else. And that was really what the tax collectors and sinners were mad about. I mean, uh, the Pharisees were mad about, that he was eating and sharing life with these sinful people, that their very presence in the room would pretty much make everybody else unclean, or at least bring down their social status. Yet Jesus shared his life, something we've explored a dozen times in here. I think I've mentioned this before, you know, the picture of the church is really this sort of picture of sharing life, right? You know, Shane Claiborne in his book, Irresistible Revolution, 
wrote a line where he said, the church will never be the church until the rich eat with the poor. Because there's something different um, when it comes to serving a meal to someone and sharing a meal with someone. And what Jesus did was he shared life. He shared meals. Well, this audience is, is fascinating because it's tax collectors and it's sinners and they're muttering in the back. And Jesus hears them being frustrated about the fact that he's eating with these sinful people. And so he begins to teach him a parable, a parable that we're all familiar with. And he says, you know, suppose one of you uh, had a hundred sheep. And, and shepherding would have been something that everybody would have understood. I mean, we don't understand shepherding. None of us are shepherds. Um, we don't really understand the concept. But this would have been something people were very familiar with. They would have seen it every time they walked out their door, people walking with sheep, shepherding those sheep. He says, suppose of you, suppose that some of you have a hundred sheep, right? He says, and one of those sheep pretty much runs away. Does he not leave the 99 out in the open country and go after the one until he finds it? And then when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he returns home and he calls his friends and his neighbors and he says, come celebrate with me because I've found this sheep. And he tells them that parable, very famous, kind of lost sheep, Jesus goes after the one. But there's some things in here that I really want you to pay attention to when it comes to sort of God's love for the individual, for the one. Because God's love is really pursuing when you think about it, God's picture of, of who he is as shepherd, right? When that sheep runs off, what does God do? What does the shepherd do? The shepherd pursues that sheep. The shepherd goes after it. Our text says that when that sheep runs away, does the shepherd not leave the 99 and go after the one? See, what you got to understand is that God's love is pursuing. God doesn't just stand on the porch and say, hey, I am here when you come back. And he shouts that sheep and says, whenever you're done running and, and kind of exploring and running away from me, I will be right here waiting on you. Which is how a lot of us see the Lord. God is here, and we're going to go out and do all of our wild things over here. And, let, and then if I ever get around to coming back, then God's still going to be waiting on me. It's not a really good picture theologically of God's relentless kind of pursuing love. It says that God pursues the lost sheep. God walks after it. Then, in the next kind of line in that, that parable, it says that and he pursues that sheep until he finds it. He goes after it until he finds it. God's love is not only pursuing, but it's never ceasing. It's never ending. God does not give up. God searches high and low. The shepherd walks to those crags and those valleys and those, those dangers and those toils and all those things to find that sheep, and he does it until he finds it. He doesn't give up at dark. He doesn't give up when things get tough. He goes until he finds the sheep. God's love, his pursuing love for the individual, for the one, is never ceasing. God will never walk away from it. God's love is relentless. It is pursuing, and it never ends. It means if you're in a place in your life where you are wandering from the Lord, God has not given up on you, but God pursues you. You will not find your way back to the king, but God chases you you. John 6 tells us that God draws all men unto himself, meaning it's God who does the pursuing, not you who does the finding. So God's love is pursuing, it's relentless, never ceasing. And then that parable says that when the shepherd finds it, and the shepherd does find it, what does he do? He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and returns home. Now I love this picture because, you know, if I've been chasing, I've lost my dog before. All right, have you ever lost your dog, goes out of the fence or whatever? When you find that dog, I mean, you're probably a better person than I am. You're probably like all cuddly and lovey. I am mad. Why'd you run, dog? You know, you're frustrated. You're angry. You know, you just want to go, ah, don't ever, you know. But that's not what happens with a shepherd. He doesn't look at that sheep and be like, I can't believe you ran. 
Why did you take off? We had everything you needed right here, and you, you bolted. He doesn't use that sheep as an example, scoop it up, bring it back to the flock, and go, you see what happens when you run? Use this as an example and go, don't ever be like this sheep. Da, 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 da. What does he do? He joyfully does what? Scoops it up, and he puts it on his shoulders, wraps those legs around his neck, 90 pounds of sheep, and the shepherd walks home. And this is not like, oh, wonderful open grassland pasture. This is shepherding in the Middle East. It is deserts and oases and mountains and all kinds of rocky terrain. And the shepherd scoops up that 90-pound sheep and he walks it home joyfully. God's love for the individual is joyfully redemptive. It means that when, when God finally gets your attention, he's not ready to lecture you on your sinfulness. But God's joyful redemption love looks at us and says, I'm going to scoop you up and I'm going to carry you where you belong. Now, I don't know about you. It's an amazing picture because I always think when, when I mess up, God looks at me and he's like, all right, it's okay. Put yourself back together. Come on, let's go. Get up. And then I've got to figure out a way to get my life back in order so that I can follow the Lord again. From a biblical perspective, it's not really what happens at all. I could never get myself back up and get on the right track and all that. So God, in his infinite, pursuing, relentless, joyfully redemptive love, scoops up the one and walks them home. And then, it doesn't stop there. God's love is this sort of incredible celebration because as the shepherd's coming home, it's not enough just to come home with a sheep and be like, I'm so glad that the sheep is here. He calls out to his friends and neighbors, hey, you're not going to believe it. You know, my sheep that was gone right, has returned home. We are going to celebrate. We are going to have a party. And he goes on to say, I tell you the truth, right, that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see what's going on? That in the economy of heaven, God has this passion for the one. He loves the individual. What I want you to see this morning is this. The one matters to the Lord. And what matters to the Lord should matter to us. As Christ followers, as the church, as individuals, it should matter to us. God's pursuing, relentless, never-ceasing, joyfully redemptive, celebratory kind of love should be what drives us to love people, to love individuals, to pursue our neighborhood, to walk through door-to-door, knock on doors, invite them to come to church, invite your coworkers, your friends, not because we want to get people to fill our building, but because that person has a name and they've got a heartbeat and they matter to God. I tell people all the time when I meet them, and you would, you'd, be, I mean, you'd be blown away how many times this happens to me in a week. When I meet someone and, I, and we start talking about whatever or, and I tell them what I do and I say, you know, I'm pastor of this church. And they go, oh, really? I've, I've never heard of that. And I say, yeah, you know, we're real. And uh, then they go, oh, how, the next question is always this. How big are you? Always. How big are you? And I always answer it the exact same way and no one ever laughs. But I always say, oh, I don't know that I appreciate the question, but I'm about 6'2", 205-ish. Nobody ever laughs. And they always feel bad because they're like, oh, no, I didn't mean how big are you. I mean, how big is your church? And I was like, oh, how big is our church? Oh, we're smaller than that. <laughs> always. Because it's the go-to question because somehow that's, that's the relevancy question, Right? I mean, it's not, I, don't, I know that people don't really, it's not like they're like, oh, you know, we got 100 or whatever. Oh, that's not, they, they're just, it's the go-to question. Because it gives us some sort of relevancy to think we're impacting all these people. 
Because the more we can impact, the better we are. And there's nothing wrong with having a desire to change the world. But the world is made up of beating hearts, and every one of them has a name. It means every person that walked through this door this morning is, is named by God. In fact, the book of John tells us that God knows every hair on your head and its number. You think the individual doesn't matter to the Lord? So as a church, we've got to take a step back. And before we start approaching our kind of heartbeat to go and, and tell the masses, we have to remind ourselves that the masses are made up of individuals. And if we labor for a year for one individual, it's worth every second. Now it would be easy for me to leave everything here and say, and that's where we stop, right? The one matters to the Lord and what matters to the Lord should matter to us. Go out and love people by name. But if I did that, I think I would miss perhaps part of the most glorious picture of why the one matters to the Lord and, and why that should matter to us. And that's this. You read scripture carefully. You are the one. I am the one. It's never somebody else. It always begins with the fact that you are the one who is loved by God. And not just pursued, but loved by God. You don't have to turn there, but I want to share a picture with you of, of what I believe to be some of this beautiful intimacy that I see um, about kind of this picture. And it comes out of the book of John chapter 13. And John chapter 13 is one of my favorite kind of chapters in scripture because it's a, it's a picture where we see a whole lot of Jesus' love laid out. I mean, he's sharing the last supper with the disciples. He is hours away from being betrayed and ultimately crucified. It's the chapter where he takes off his outer garments and he washes the disciples' feet and he looks at them all and he says, listen, the church will know you're my disciples by how you love each other. And he gives those instructions to the church. It's this really cool chapter. Well, Jesus is basically telling these guys, they're reclining at the table. And the way they ate back then is they didn't sit in chairs all formal like we did. They would have a table and they would lean back and usually that table was on the floor and they would recline on an elbow and they would eat and they would fellowship. That's why eating was not, for us it's such a sort of industrial task. You get in, you get out, you know, but for for, the, for that period of history and even in other cultures, man, eating is sharing life. And so they were reclining at the table and Jesus was telling them some incredible but very difficult news from them to hear. He said this, he said, I'm going to tell you the truth. One of you at this table is going to betray me. Now, these are guys that had walked with Jesus for three years. They have watched him do the miraculous. They have, they have stood by his side. I mean, this is heartbreaking news that one of these people that they knew so well was going to betray Jesus. And he had just told them that. And this is what he says in John chapter 13. Let me find it. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus goes on to talk about how it's the one who dips the bread in the cup with him. But what I want you to see is not what's happening at face value, not Last Supper and bread dipping and betrayal, but really what's unfolding right there. Because the book of John is fascinating, because John, who wrote it, never refers to himself as John, right? You probably know this. He refers to himself, as we just saw, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he named himself throughout all of that scripture. And what we see here is this intimate picture where Jesus is reclining at the table with these 12, and he says, one of you will betray me, and they are all broken. I mean, brokenhearted. I mean, this is, these are people that were willing to give their lives up for Jesus. And they've just heard that one of them is going to betray him. And, and they want to know who. 
Not so they can run that person out, but because they want to know. Because they are deeply, deeply concerned. And so it says that the disciple who Jesus loved, and how he named himself, was reclining next to Jesus. And Peter, who's probably a few people away, motions at him. Because this is what Peter does. He's like, find that out. Find out who it is. And it says that that disciple, the one who Jesus loved, leaned back against Jesus. And, and actually the better translation out of the Greek says leaned against his breast. So leaned against Jesus' chest in this sort of moan of intimacy. And he says, Lord, who is it? But what I want you to see wrapped up in here is this. John's identity was not as disciple, evangelist, pastor, brother, friend, whatever you want to name him as. John never even refers to himself by name in his book. He just calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. And it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love other disciples. And it doesn't mean that Jesus loved John more. It just means that John's identity was wrapped up in the fact that he was the one who was loved by God. That was his identity. I mean, imagine writing a book today and not putting your name anywhere on it. Man, it's crazy. But John wrote this letter, and his whole identity was, I'm just the person that Jesus loves. I think we always look at the individual as someone else. We always say, I've got to love that one. I've got to pursue that one. I've got to chase that one. The wanderer, the sinner, the struggle. The reality is, is that God's passionate, relentless, pursuing, never-ceasing, joyfully redemptive, celebratory love is for you. Where is your identity? What is it wrapped up in? Is it wrapped up in who you are, what you have, what you don't have? Where you live, where you don't live, what your Facebook page says about you? I mean, who is your identity wrapped up in? Is it in who you're married to? Is it your name? Is it the lineage of your name? Is it where you live, where you go to church? Where is it? Because for John, his identity was wrapped up in this. I'm just the one who Jesus loves. What if that was enough for us? What if that was enough for you? To just be the one that Jesus loved. Not more than everybody else. Not the only one that Jesus loved, but that was who you are. I am loved by God. Because if we as a church and as Christ followers are going to love the one, we've got to start by understanding that we are the one. You can't love someone the way that Christ loves you until you recognize just how much Jesus loves you. Loving the one means understanding you are the one. And for some of us, that means a major identity shift because we're more frustrated about who we're not than who God says we are. So when I think about our mission as a church, to love much and love well, take the gospel to the one, what we're reminded of is this. We want to love the one with that same relentless, pursuing, never-ceasing, joyfully redemptive, celebratory love that God loves you with. Because our desire is that that person, that heartbeat, that name that lives three doors down, that lives next to our building, that lives wherever, would understand that they are the one that is loved by God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these moments to gather in this place and for the truth that comes through Scripture. God, I pray and confess that oftentimes, Lord, it is, it is hard to feel that my identity is wrapped up in you alone. My identity is wrapped up in what other people say, what other people think, what I have, what I don't have, what I want, what I don't want. My identity is wrapped up in a lot of other things. But God, it's such an amazing picture to think about John who leans back against the chest of your son. That close, that intimate, and refers to himself as the one that Jesus loves, not out of arrogance, but out of truthfulness. 
God, what it would be like if we were a people, if every individual in this room were someone that could say, you know what, I'm not much else, but I'm the one that Jesus loves. Everything else can be in shambles. Everything else can be a mess. I don't have to have anything, whatever. But I am loved deeply in a relentless, pursuing, joyfully redemptive kind of way. Loved by God. Because God, in the economy of heaven, is the one that matters. As we close our time in worship, I'm challenging you to stand up and as we sing, to sing as the one, the one that is redeemed, the one that has been given new life, the one that has been set free, the one that is loved by God. And if you need an identity change, ask God. Just pray, go, God, change my heart, break my heart, give me a new identity, help me see that it is enough for me to be loved by you. And then to love the world and the individuals in that world with that same pursuing, redemptive, name-changing love.